Good evening to you. Glad you're here tonight. We're uh, blessed to be able to come together and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're glad that uh, Philip Reinke is here tonight to preach for us. And uh, I've told Philip he's got 30 minutes. <laughs> he said, "He said you mean an hour and 30 minutes?" I said, "Well, somewhere." But. Uh, Philip will be uh, preaching for us tonight. We're excited about hearing from him. And uh, I've not heard uh, any new news from Southeast Asia. So uh, we'll just uh, enjoy the news we had so far. Okay? Because they're, uh, it's 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning over there. So hopefully they're in bed getting some, some rest. Let's stand and greet one another in the name of the Lord right now.
there is sunshine in my soul today more glorious and bright than glows in any earthly sky for Jesus is my light. Sunshine in my soul. Like you know it. Okay. Sing out. Let's go to the third word. There is music in my soul today.
about to beat the cue over here to death, won't, won't to be faster. So here we go, okay? Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for what he came and did for us, for his coming to earth, for his sacrifice at Calvary, for his resurrection, Lord, and that he reigns on high. We just thank you, Lord, that uh, you give us that name above every name. Lord, I do pray for Philip as he comes tonight. Pray, Lord, that you would bless him, give him the words we need to hear. Lord, just fill him with your Holy Spirit. Help him, Lord, that he would be able to deliver the message in a powerful and great way. And we just thank you and we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. This is good for an evening. Y'all, y'all know I really like like the power of, of a good evening or a good morning. And we're here in church. It's, this is good. This is exciting. Uh, 
Well, tonight what we're going to talk about is Exodus chapter 32. I was very, very thankful as uh, Mark Davis and I were talking that uh, he gave me the choice of preaching in Exodus or preaching in Leviticus. And I told him that I was already teaching the kids in Exodus. I I taught this to the kids this morning. And I said it would be a little bit easier if I were to preach the same thing I was already studying for. And uh, he graciously obliged. And uh, didn't he do a great job in Leviticus? I don't think I could have done as good a job as he did anyway. So here we are in Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. And there really is a lot of stuff happening in in this chapter. And as I was studying for this and as I was thinking through, there was two routes that I could have taken with this. I could have taken one with just... Preaching Exodus 32, 1 through 9, and, and just talking about the sin. Or we talk about the ramifications of the sin as well. We have the, we have the golden calf, which we're going to read in a moment. And then God begins to deal with the idolatry and the sin of his people, which takes us all the way through the rest of the chapter. So it was either going to be really short, or it was going to be really long. And uh, I thought, as Mike's already alluded to, my hour and a half sermon, we took the long route. Uh, because we're going we're gonna to really flesh out this text. So if y'all will turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to read the first nine verses. Because this is where all the good stuff is. So Exodus 32 verses 1 through 9. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron replied to them and said, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears and of the ears on your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that they had on their ears and brought them to Aaron. Aaron then took the gold from them, fashioning them with an engraving tool, and made it into the image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat, drink, and got up to party. The Lord then spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for the people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned away from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen these people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Let's pray real quick. God, I thank you for, for this time that we can come here and we can, we can fellowship as brothers and sisters. God, that we can be here and we can study your word. God, I pray that you be with us tonight. God, I pray that your words that are spoken here, God, I pray that, that you lead us to, to a deeper understanding of, of who you are and what you would have us do. God, we ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So it, it helps us to understand a little bit of the context of how they, how they got to this mountain, how they, how they got to, to where they are in this moment, in this text. And there's a, there's a, a whole lot of gap that's between Scott and, and Mark and, and me that we, we can't get to with how fast we're going through the Bible and our reading plan, right? But I'm going to give you a, a real quick Cliff Notes version of what's happened up to this point. 
So right now, the, the people are at Mount Sinai. God's descended down onto this mountain, and he's beginning to speak to the people. He's spoken to them the Ten Commandments. He's spoken to them different instructions on how to live. And one thing that I found really interesting is um, Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. The people respond to God and say, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. God, we, you, you're here, you're powerful. Whatever you want us to do, we're going to do it. We will follow you. You've led us out of Egypt. We saw the, the plagues that you cast on, on the Egyptians. We saw you part the water. We know you are a God of power. We're going to follow you. How quickly things change, right? Now, friends, it's been, it's been three months since they exited Egypt and, and they got to this point. And we begin to see the, the deterioration of the, the Israelites trusting God when they come to the mountain and God descends and he says, come to me. And the people go, that's scary. Like, there's, there's thunder. It's, it's really powerful up there. Moses, you go. We're going to hang back here. You're kind of our leader already. You just go up there and, and you talk on our behalf. You, you mediate between us and God. Moses goes up and he's there for 40 days. Within those 40 days, this is where we get to chapter 32. Now, the Bible doesn't say exactly how long Moses had been gone, but based on Israel's history and what we're going to continue to read, it probably wasn't that long. That the Israelites then, they, uh, they forget what God's done, who he is, what Moses has done, and what God's plan is for them. So we're going, to have to, we're going to look at these first nine verses, and we're going to, kind of, we're going to focus in on a few at a time. The first, uh, the first verse, the people have forgotten the process. They don't trust God to fulfill what he's going to fulfill. They don't trust that Moses is working on their behalf as he's gone up the mountain. We see that when they say, hey, that Moses guy, we don't really know what happened to him. Surely somebody saw him leave camp and walk up the mountain. He didn't go anywhere. He didn't leave. God didn't leave. He's still there. They're all right there. They're not far from the mountain. But there's this ignorance that they have. This, this almost desire to detach themselves from the plan of God. To say, yeah, Moses, we, we don't really know where Moses is. We don't, we don't really have a God right now. So, hey, Aaron... Why don't you make us something? Make us a new God. Make us someone that we can follow now because we don't have a God anymore. It's not like there's one up on the mountain right there that we can you know, see. Moses has failed a little bit in leaving Aaron in charge. <laughs> he thought Aaron was going to be a good, a good move leaving him in charge, and, and probably for a week or two, Aaron did a good job. I mean, it's not, the Bible doesn't say that as soon as Moses got up on the mountain that the people turned to sin. It was a little bit of time. But we're going to see that, uh, that Aaron does some good things and some bad things all mixed together here. So we go down a little bit, and we look at verses 2 through 4, and Aaron's beginning to feel the pressure of the people. As they're pushing him and saying, Aaron, make us a God. Make us somebody new. 
Make us an image like we had in Egypt. Because this is important to remember that for 400 years, the Israelites had been in Egyptian worship. They had been in that culture of, of, of Egyptian idolatry, of these images that, that people would worship to. Scott said last week that it took one day to get Israel out of Egypt, and it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. We're seeing that right here. That although the Israelites are no longer in Egypt, they're no longer slaves or even free in Egypt... This idea, this, this corrupted and twisted view of what worship looks like and what, what a God looks like is ingrained into them. And they're not thinking that we have this God here on a mountain who, who is coming in all of his power to be with us, to commune with us, to talk with us. They want an image. They want something tangible, something they could touch, something they could see. Something that they could put right out in front of them. So Aaron, trying to appease with the people a little bit, says, all right, we'll take your, take your rings, take the gold that you have, bring it to me and I'll make you something. Now we can, we can think about this a little bit, that earrings are really small. So how many people do you think had to come to Aaron and give of their little items for him to make even even something that could just sit on this podium right here, that would be a, that's a lot of gold. It's a ton of gold that they all brought to Aaron that he then fashioned into this item, this, this idol that he put before the people. Now, I don't think that Aaron was 100% in the wrong in this. Now, hear me out. I know you're thinking, okay, he's crazy. Hear me out first, and then you can think I'm crazy. I don't think Aaron was 100% in the wrong. I think he was like 98% in the wrong. Because of the wording that he uses, the way that he begins to explain it. He says, bring these items to me. He makes it into this golden cow. And he says, Israel, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. Now I believe it, and then the, the, as I've been studying this and reading different commentaries, I think that Aaron is trying to bridge the gap here. That the people want an item. So he's making them an item. But to say, Israel, here's a thing. Here's something that you can look at and see. But this is just a representation of that God up on the mountain. That God still brought you out of Egypt. But here's something that, that's tangible. Now, 100% sin. Totally sin. He made an image. They had just been told the Ten Commandments. Commandment one, don't make a God. Don't, don't make an image. And here he is, making an image. But we start to see how, how we begin to ease into idolatry. Idolatry isn't something that just that we, uh, we go into and say, you know what, I'm going to make an idol right now. And this is going to be an idol in my life, and I'm going to give all of my time and attention to it. More often than not, it, it sneaks up on us. And it's sneaking up here here on Israel. And Aaron, beginning to fail as a leader, he doesn't have someone else there to hold him accountable. He doesn't have Moses to help him. He doesn't have Joshua, because Joshua's halfway up the mountain. He doesn't have any of these other people 
he should have other people. There, there has to have been somebody else. Or we would hope there would have been someone else in the whole nation of, of Israel at this time that could have said, hey, Aaron, I think that's a bad idea. But they all wanted this. So as a nation, Israel's falling into it, and they're diving into this sin. And we continue down. We read a little bit further that not only have they now made this image, but now they're worshiping and they're sacrificing to, to this thing, this golden cow, this golden calf that they've made. They're now worshiping to, and they're, they're bringing their offerings and everything that they would do to worship God. They're now worshiping this item. And I don't think that that was part of Aaron's initial plan. I don't think Aaron initially went into this saying, we're going to make an item, and this is going to be the God, and we're going to worship to it, and we're going to praise it, and it's going to lead us to the promised land. It's going to be great. But the sin of the people, the pressure that was on Aaron to make the calf, obviously it was strong. So how much stronger of an influence the mob mentality of, Aaron, we're going to do this. Whether you like it or not, we're going to worship to this thing, and you're just going to be okay with it. We continue down to, to verse 7, and, or verse 7 through 9, and now we see the, the full sin in all of, its, all of its glory there. That it switches now. The, the Bible switches from this narrative of Israel at the bottom of the mountain to a conversation between Moses and God. And God saying, hey, these people that you're leading, go down and deal with them. They're sinning. They're full into their sin. They're not, they're not heading into sin. They're in it. Go. They're stiff-necked people. They're not going to follow me. They don't want to worship me. Go deal with them. Because I'm going to destroy them. But idolatry, it never happens to us, right? I mean, you and me don't. We, we're, not, we're not dealing with idolatry right now. I mean, we don't, we don't make images and put them in our living room unless it's a TV. Oh, oh. <laughs> but as I was growing up, um, grew up in Virginia, really close to the beach. We were, I grew up about a half an hour from Virginia Beach. We were right on the coast. And the first church that I worked at, there was a pretty regularly, I would have people come to me, and they would say, hey, we're going we're gonna to go to the beach this Sunday, we won't be at church. We were also close to a couple of theme parks, and they would also say, hey, we're going to go to Bush Gardens, we're going to go to Kings Dominion, we're going we're gonna to go to these theme parks for the day, and we'll, we'll, we'll see you next week. These fun, these pleasures, what started off as, hey, we're going to have a fun day as a family, you could have a fun day as a family on Saturday, on Friday. A lot of times this was happening in the middle of the summer. You could do it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> but these good things began to be twisted into idols. And we're going to see this uh, as, we, as we continue down, that the rings, the, the, the jewelry, the, the items that the Israelites attained when they were running out of Egypt... The things that God said, hey, they're going to pay you to go. Just hold on to that stuff. These gifts began to get twisted. 
these things that could have been used to worship and glorify God, these good things are now becoming the sin itself. Another thing I had in here was uh, I liked to go fishing as a kid. I wasn't good. I was terrible at it. I'm still terrible at it. So if anybody wants to teach me, that's my plug right there. My grandparents had a... They, they, they lived on a lake. And I'd go out there a couple of times. Not really regularly. But I'd go out there enough to, to know how to fish, just not well. I had another grandfather who would take me out and we would go out to bigger lakes and we'd rent a boat and we'd go out there and it was great. We had a, ton, we had a, we had a lot of fun. But if you've ever been fishing, especially fishing on a boat, you know the joy of finding that, that perfect fishing hole where you, just, you, can, you know the fish are right there and you're throwing the line in the water and you're catching all these great fish. But in a boat and on a windy day, what happens to that boat? starts to drift away. And all of a sudden, you're no longer near your nice fishing hole. You're drifting further and further and further away. The only solution to that is to drop an anchor in the, ground, in, in the water. We didn't have an anchor. I had a rope. I would tie it to a branch. That was my, that was my little 15-year-old self jerry-rigging it. But you had to have something that would keep you in place. And we're seeing how Israel didn't have somebody in place without Moses. Moses was their anchor holding them to God. And when they took that anchor away, when Moses left the people, when, he, when his physical body was not there and he was up on the mountain talking with God, trying to be the anchor for him, trying to be a better leader, trying to lead them to exactly what God had promised, the people began to drift. And like we've just seen, it, it started off small. It started off with Aaron saying, we're going to make something so that you can worship that God better. And then it went into, let's throw a party for our sin. See, idolatry, idolatry sneaks up on us. Idolatry is easy. And it tends to happen when we don't recognize it. And that's the danger that we face. And that we have to be constantly on guard for. As we continue down to between verses 10 and 14, we now have this conversation, this intense conversation between Moses and God. After God said, hey, Moses, go down the mountain. I'm done with them. I'm going to kill them all, and I'm going to start over with you. Verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Moses began to plead. He began to intercede on behalf of the people. Moses knew he didn't sin here. Moses didn't do anything wrong. But he began pleading and begging God to relent of his anger, to relent of his, of his wrath that was coming for the people. It got me thinking, what's our reaction when we face sin? When you and I, when, when we go out and we, and we see blatant sin, how do we react to it? Do we sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen? Do we say, yes, God destroy you. You're a sinner. God wipe you out. Or do we say, God, they're sinners. They need you. I'm going to beg and plead that you intercede in their life, that you come into their life and you, you reveal yourself to them to try to pull them out of their sin. 
Now, there's probably a ton more different reactions that we could have to it. These were the first three that I thought of because as I'm teaching kids and as I'm in that, typically their first response is that middle one of, hey, they messed up, get them. Which is not the right response. It's not. In verse 14, there's a really cool, a really interesting passage in there. Where when you first look at it, it appears that God changes his mind. That God is into the wrath. He's going to destroy the people. And then it says that he relented. And that he would not bring the punishment that was due. So it got me thinking, I'll be honest with y'all, this, this took me a little bit of time to, to reconcile God's nature a little bit here, that does God change his mind? Does he think one thing and then, and then say, no, I was wrong there, I'm going to go in this direction? Because that's not God. If God is perfect in everything that he does, he can't change his mind. He can't say, no, that wasn't right, this is right. So I started diving into this. And I'll tell you, I probably spent more time studying this one verse, this one topic, than I did the rest of this text. Because it was so fascinating to me to think, what, what is being said here? What is so important about this verse? I started thinking through, what does this look like? What is really going on here that it, at first glance looks like God changes his mind? And God doesn't change his mind. When you take a step back, when you look at it in in just this one moment, that's the way it appears. But when you take a step back and you look at the bigger plan, God's going to get his people to the promised land. Whether it's with all of the people or whether it's with just Moses. One way or another, God's getting them there. That's where they're going. But how great is it that we have a God who by hearing the pleads of Moses, says, I'll I'll work within this. Not changing his mind, because the plan's still in place. But he's going to take a different route because of Moses. And then we see the power of interceding on somebody else's behalf. Because Moses here could have been justified. And God would have been perfectly justified in saying, yeah, they sinned, just wipe them out. That's what we as sinners deserve. We, we've earned that. We've got that badge. We sinned, we deserve destruction. But what a great God that we have. Who says, yeah, you still sinned. But I'll still work with you. We see that here, that God still wants to work with the people. Now, we're going to see right at the end here that there's still punishment. There's still punishment that comes from those who even repent from their sin. The last verse in the chapter says there's still a plague that God sends on his people because sin requires punishment. The next big bulk section here the results of idolatry. The ramifications of their sin. Moses comes down off the mountain. He sees firsthand 
Not God telling him what's going on, but he's walking down there and he sees the, the rampant sin that is happening with this people that he loves and cares about. As he's walking down with, with the Ten Commandments in his hands, he sees it, and what does he do? Takes it and smashes them on the ground. Destroys the commandments. Which one way to look at it is that the people have sinned, these commandments, these rules that you said you're going to follow, worthless. What's the point in having these rules if you're going to disobey them anyway? Then Moses does something that I, I found a little shocking as I, when, I, when I read this. He then calls together the Levites. And Moses literally draws a line in the sand. He says, all right, nation, you sinned. I'm going to give you a chance to repent. Repent and come across this line. If not, stay over there. Most of the nation comes over. And the rest of them, Moses tells the Levites, grab a sword and kill them. Pretty harsh, right? Moses and God wanted this sin dealt with right now. They wanted it over with. They were done. This sin wasn't going to just be be coddled or we're going to take some steps to work through this sin and try to get over this idolatry. Moses said, no, we're, we're done with this. You're either for God or you're against him. And if you're against him, you're done. And friends, that, that should lead us to the, the gravity of what sin entails. In this too, I skipped over it. That was by accident, not intentional. What Moses does with the golden calf, when he gets it, he doesn't take it and just throw it away. He takes it, he destroys it, grinds it up into powder, scatters the powder in the drinking water, and forces Israel to drink it. See, what that leads us to is that God doesn't want to just deal with sin, deal with idolatry. He wants it gone. He wants it eliminated. And by this act of destroying the, the idol, and by drawing a line in the sand, we see the gravity of sin and the fact that God wants it dealt with immediately. We're not going to play in this sin for a little bit. It's over. You're for God or you're against Him. Choose. It's really unfortunate, it's really sad that after everything that they had seen God do, that there were still some that, that chose to live in their idolatry, that chose to still live on that side of the line, worshiping an idol and choosing to disobey God. The last, uh, the last little bit that I have for us. I'm going to read the last couple of verses here. We're going to start in verse 30. It says, The following day Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I'll be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sin... But if not, please erase me from the book that you have written. 
The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now you go, lead the people to the place that I told you about, and see, my angel will go before you. But on the day that I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord then inflicted a plague upon the people for what they had, did, for what they had done with the calf Aaron had made. See, God is a righteous God. God is a just God. There's been a, a ton of times where I've had conversations with people who, who can't understand how God can order killing and order death. And we're, we're going to see when we get into the book of Joshua and Judges that God's going to tell Joshua, lead the people and wipe out that whole city. And we think, how can, how can God be love and order death? Because we're thinking about him too small. We're thinking about God and we're putting him in this little box. And saying, my God only loves people. My God only cares for people. My God only wants good and happiness for my people. Instead of realizing that God does want those things. But he also isn't going to entertain sin in order to get those things. God is a just God. A righteous God who will deal with sin every time. We can't forget that. We can't hide our sin. We can't think, well, I got away with it once, so I'm good. God will deal with sin, and he will deal with it justly. And in these last couple of verses, we see a couple of things. We see Moses interceding again with God. And we see this wonderful foreshadowing of how Moses is pointing to Jesus. So we know that everything in the Old Testament points to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and everything in the New Testament points back and is reflecting on that. And here, Moses interceding being willing to take on the, the, the wrath and the punishment that God has for the people points us to Jesus. The way I had it uh, written out here is that if we look at, at Exodus 32, we see three big things. We see sin, we see punishment, and we see restoration. We see sin in the fact that they made a calf. They made this golden idol, and they truly sinned. I mean, they messed up big. We see the punishment that Moses destroyed the idol and held them accountable for their action. But then we also see restoration. We see God restoring a people back to himself. Saying, you've sinned. That's bad. Don't do it again. But I'll still bring you in. I will still be your God. Still follow me. And I'm still going to lead you to the promised land. We take a look back at the, entire, the entirety of the Bible and, and all of mankind up to this point, and we see sin. We know it's, we know it's out here. We, we, we look around and we see the ramifications of sin. The fact that sin has corrupted this world. Paul wrote in Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. 
I want to not sin, but I keep sinning. I keep falling into this. Genesis 6, 5. As God's assessing the, the world, He says the heart is evil. It's only evil all the time. There is not good in this creation anymore. There's nothing. There's no good. It's only death. It's only sin. It's only running further away from me. And our punishment, we know, is our separation from God. The punishment for our sin is death and separation and and an eternal gap between us and a holy God. But then we also know that there's restoration. There's sin, there's punishment, and there's restoration with us as well. Romans 5 verse 18 says, So then, as one trespass, there is condemnation for everybody. Because one man, Adam, sinned, he brought death and sin to all of creation. So also, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we know that, that there is now redemption and there's life that's offered to all of us because of that one event. One event brought sin into this world and one event brought, got it out of here. But there's, a, there's action on our part that we have to choose to be with God. Everything about this has to point us to idolatry. Has to point us to this this main theme here. What does idolatry look like in our lives here? Because again, I think we can I think we have an extreme view of, of what idolatry is. If if I were to ask you what's an idol, you would probably give me something way on closer to the golden calf than I think what's actual idolatry in our daily lives. There's a couple of things that, that I started thinking about as, as I thought through and pondered and, and meditated on what, what's an idol in my life? What, what can become an idol in the life of someone living in 2020? And let me do a couple of things that I didn't initially think about. The first one's money. I know that's an easy one. The second one's not as easy. Money. The fact that we run after money. That we strive for money. Now, money's a good thing. Money pays for the lights here. Money helps the church continue. Money helps pay for the food for your family. Money helps pay for the gas in your car. We need money to live. But there's a point when money begins to consume our lives. And that's where our focus is, and we're no longer focused on God. We're no longer running completely after God, but we're now running. We're trying to run after God and money. And then we're just running after money with a little bit of God sprinkled in. And that's dangerous because it happens so easily. Another thing I have, I've been thinking about this for years is your family. It's so easy for Lauren and I to, to fall into really idolizing our kids instead of our relationship with God. It's easy for us to, to spend all of our time with the kids and, and to, be, to be playing with them and feeding them and everything else that goes with kids that by the end of the day we're so exhausted that we just want to go to sleep and we're not really focused on, on God or we're doing all these fun things and not 
putting discipleship in it. You remember I used the example a while back about these families who would go to theme parks and go to the beach, and they would tag it as, this is our family time, this is our family discipleship, our family worship. And I'm going, yeah, but you've actually got to be you know, reading the Bible or actually doing some discipleship for that to work. <laughs> for you to use that excuse, put some Bible into your time at the beach. Sing some hymns as you're going to the theme park. Maybe share Jesus with somebody while you're there. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can do this, and you can still tag it as family discipleship. But just going to have fun is good, but you're replacing God with fun. And that's where we begin to slip into idolatry in our modern lives. I told y'all that I taught this lesson to the kids this morning. And they didn't know this, but I, I, oh, this is one of my proudest examples. Because I flipped this on them and I turned it on, it on, turned it on their heads and got them to, to realize that they've got idols in their lives. I started off by asking them how many of them read their Bible every day. It's about half that raised their hand, which means it's about a, th- a third to a quarter that actually do. You know, kids just tell you what, you, what, they, want, what they think you want to hear. But I was proud of those that didn't raise their hand because they were honest. But I, So I asked them how many of them were reading their Bible every day. Not many. Then I started asking them about sports, about video games. I had them make out of Play-Doh something that, that they really loved, something that they just loved to do. One girl made a, a music note. Then she loved to sing. She would spend hours singing and, and practicing so she could get better. Some boys made a soccer goal and a ball and said it's the sports. But they would spend hours outside practicing to get better. So I began to ask them, how much time do you spend watching movies, watching YouTube, playing video games, hanging out outside with your friends? All these things that they just love to do, and they are all oh, hours. We will spend all of the time that we have. We'll do on all these all these fun things. And then I asked them how how long do you think it takes to read your Bible? Five minutes. Take five minutes. Read a couple of verses, pray, and then go about your day. I'm telling you, I was super, I was so proud of it because the look on their face was, oh. Okay, all right, so I'm not doing everything for God. But I want to ask you all the same thing. How many of you, and I ask myself this too, how much time do I truly spend trying to, to study God's Word and to, to have, his, have the, the truths impact my life? Or do I spend more time rolling on the floor with Jenny or watching a movie? watching a TV show. And I'm telling you all, it's convicting when you start to think about all the time that we waste on these fun things, but things that are eventually going to fade away. Star Wars isn't going to save me. I, know, I love it. It's great. Star Wars isn't going to save me. Jesus is going to save me. So my last question is this. What are the idols that are in your life? Do you have idols in your life? So can you recognize them? 
If you don't have idols in your life right now, that's awesome. I'm so happy for you. Pass it along. Help others. But I warn you to stay on guard. If you're in a great place with your walk with God right now, and you know that you're giving Him everything, and He's infiltrated every part of your life, keep it up. Think about what got you to that point, and keep those practices in place. Keep those disciplines in mind as you continue through your life. And if there are idols in your life, if there are things that, that have crept into, into your, daily, your daily walk, your daily routine that has become an idol, has consumed your time, has taken the place of God, has taken the, has, has taken the place of, of reading your Bible and, and praying and seeking God. First of all, stop. <laughs> Get rid of it. Move away. But recognize that this is sin, and God will deal with sin. But there's always hope. There's redemption and there's restoration that He offers Romans 5, verse 20 and 21 says, The law came along and multiplied the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned over death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ. Friends, as the law was put in place in Exodus and Leviticus, it helped the Israelites and it helps us recognize that this one action that we were thinking is really these like four sins that we need to stop. The law puts, puts into our mind the, the fact that we truly are sinful, fallen humans. But the beauty of God sending His Son to this earth to die covered all of those. Mark said it this morning that there were all sorts of different types of offerings to atone for different types of sin. But when Jesus died, he paid once and for all, became that sacrifice that covered every sin, if you'll only accept and follow him. As Mike said, there's, or, uh, Mike told me there's no altar, altar call, no, um, no time of invitation, but I just want you to know that we're here. I'm going to throw Mike under the bus here and say that we're going to stick around. If you've got questions, if you need to talk, we'll hang out over here. Please come talk to us. I don't want you to leave here with idols in your life on a track towards sin, death, and destruction. Come talk to us. We would love to pray with you. We would love to help you work through whatever is happening in your life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are again. Lord, I thank you for this text that you've put before us, God, of, of this golden cow. And Lord, I pray for all of us here that we don't, we don't fall into the same sins that, that Aaron did and that the people did. But God, that we be on guard against it. God, I pray for all of us here that, that you be working in our lives. And God, we thank you for what you've done and what you're going to do. Lord, we ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.